Open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew, or Mark, sorry, Mark 11, forgive me. Mark 11, we were in Matthew this morning. And we made reference to this uh, this morning since we talked about what Jesus had to say about anger and hatred and uh, contempt and malice and all that, that violence and murder is really an internal issue, not, not just an external one. Um, and, and, and inevitably, uh, there is uh, the question of what do we do about Jesus getting a little angry and uh, the story where Jesus got a bit testy. Uh, his emotions uh, were uh, clearly on his sleeve. It's right here in the cleansing of the temple. Uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong. I believe this is one of the stories found in all four Gospels. In John's Gospel, it is at least in his chronology at the beginning. There's some debate. Was there one cleansing or two? Not worth our time exploring. But John puts it at the beginning, or as the synoptics put it, at the end. But I do believe that all four Gospels include this story. And so it is a significant moment in the ministry of Jesus. Um, and it is bigger than questions of, well, if Jesus got angry, so can I. Right? So with that, if you will, let's read Mark chapter 11, starting verse 12. You'll stand with me out of reverence for God's word. We're going to put it in its context, and then we'll go from there. Mark writes, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was the season for figs. He said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sowed and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sowed pigeons. He would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple, and he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? You have made it a den of robbers. Chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. Let's go, Lord, in prayer. Father, we are grateful for this time that you have afforded us to open up your word. May we be found faithful to it. May we see that there is righteous anger, there is unrighteous anger. And may we choose uh, the former rather than the latter. Uh, but Lord, we always ask that you would open our entire being, our hearts, our minds, our eyes, our ears, our hands, our feet, our mouth, that we would be transformed and go in obedience to the gospel. Would you help us in that endeavor? And may I decrease so you can increase. In the name of your son, we pray. Amen. Maybe seated. Well, we've already said that this is the story that everyone turns to to justify their anger, which is a significant part of the problem, is the assumption is made that if Jesus got angry on this occasion, then my perpetual and constant anger, anger must be justified. This is the problem whenever we read the Bible on the surface level or we read the Bible with an agenda. If your agenda is to justify your anger, your contempt, your, your refusal to forgive your enemies, so on and so forth, you can make the Bible say whatever it is that you want. But as we've said before, a text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. And we certainly see that here. Uh, as you see here, that, that you have more than Jesus knocking over temple tables, but rather it fits within the context of Mark's broader argument, which goes beyond our purposes this evening. Um, but you see a, a series of events that Mark is putting together to make a broader point about Jesus's um, a ministry here. Now, on the surface, whenever we read this story, we, we all secretly have the same reaction. Uh, 
And that reaction is, Jesus seems to be overreacting. Can, can, can we say that? I think we can. Let's just say next Sunday evening, got ourselves a potluck, right? And you, you've, you've worked on uh, this whatever uh, dish you've made, and you've brought it, you're real proud of it, and you're, you're secretly hoping there's none left, but, but maybe your spouse is hoping that no one eats any of it so they can have it for leftovers. That's, that's what I do. So if I make my mac and cheese, I hope someone else makes some mac and cheese. I'm going to eat their mac and cheese so there's mac and cheese left over me to take home, right? I can't be the only one that does that, okay? I can't be, right? I, I, just, I just refuse to believe I'm the only one that does that. But if you will, imagine we're back here minding our own business and someone comes in and just, just, just barrels in and starts knocking over all the tables, stands up on top of the table and says, enough is enough, this has got to stop. Well, beyond just the thought that that was inappropriate and wrong and, and so on and so forth, we would also say, you know, I hear what he was complaining about. Seemed like a bit of an overreaction to get the point across. And if we're honest with ourselves, we see Jesus doing the same thing. Either Jesus has serious anger management issues or something more is going on here. Let's start with the cursing of verses 12 to 14. No doubt this is one of the most bizarre miracles performed by Jesus in the Gospels. Jesus comes up, he sees that it doesn't have fruit, and so he just curses it. The end of the story. I mean, it's a bizarre story. In fact, we know it is bizarre in in the sense what type of miracle it is. That there are only two miracles in the four Gospels that we can say are destructive. All the miracles are constructive. Uh, A blind man sees, a dead man lives, a deaf man hears, uh, a demonized man is cleansed, so on and so forth, right? Those those are where Jesus uh, uh, constructs something, Jesus creates something, Jesus heals something, right? You have an entire multitude that are hungry, he feeds them. Uh, Disciples who are scared out at sea, he calms the storm. These are constructive miracles, On two occasions, we see destructive events. One is when Jesus cleanses the man who is demonized and lesion goes into the pigs and they they, they jump into a lake, right? Literally, they go jump into a lake. And, And we see that as destructive because if you're the pig owner, right, and your livelihood are those pigs, I doubt you're going to put Jesus on your Christmas card list that year, Right? Because he just severely affected you. Now, I think there's a lot of uh, literary devices going on there. What you have is an unclean man, right, and, and, and who is cleansed, and those unclean spirits go into unclean animals. I, I think there's a lot going on in that narrative, but it's still destructive, right? And it, and it leads people to, to want to kick Jesus out because he's just destroying their economy. This is the second one. You see, at least in the first story, Jesus is cleansing the man of what is unclean. Here, it is just pure destruction. Jesus curses the tree. And, by the way, we should note that this is the last miracle in Mark's gospel before the resurrection. You talk about anticlimactic, isn't it? Because the other gospels, they understand this. Don't quote me on this, but I think Matthew's last gospel... Um, he may have the, I think he has the cursing as well. But, but the last one leading up to the triumphal entry is the healing of, of the blind men in Jericho. That's a good last miracle. I mean, that, 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 that'll work there. Mark puts the last miracle, Jesus destroying something. So it is significant here. 
You notice the timing, verse 12, on the following day, right, when he came to Bethany. That, of course, connects everything before. And what happened the previous day, I'm sure your, 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 your subtitles in your Bible will tell you. Chapter 11, verse 1, starts the triumphal entry. So last week of Jesus starts in chapter 11. There's only 16 chapters of Mark. And so the last a good chunk of it takes place all in one year, or one week, rather. And so this would be Monday. So if Sunday is the triumphal entry, there he enters Jerusalem as as king, right? But not just any king. He is a humbled king riding on a donkey. The people receive him as the Davidic heir on the throne. That would have been a political statement as, as well as a messianic and a theological one. And he, he, he accepts this, right? But as Jesus enters into Jerusalem, we see now by Monday, he is shocked by what it is that he, he, he finds. What is the king entering into? And so what he, what, what he is given is more than a throne. He is commissioned to cleanse Israel. And so on the following day, after he's had this triumphal event, he, he's ready to enter Jerusalem a day, and he finds himself hungry. Just a quick reminder that Jesus is fully divine and he is fully human. He got hungry on Mondays too. Well, you, you see there he, he is hungry and... Um, Verse 13, and seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. But when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. This is why many come to the story and say Jesus is overreacting. Like, for example, I'm willing to bet no one here in December was mowing your yard, unless you're one of those weirdos, right? right? Were, you, were you mowing your yard in December? No, it ain't the time of year for it, to the glory of God, right? Now, like, like if, depending on weather, because Kentucky's weird, uh, it may be early November, and you're like, okay, for like the last month, I think, is this is the last, this is the last mow, right? Please let this be the last mow, okay? But by December, right, when, when you're putting up stockings, right, you, you're not thinking, oh, I got to hurry up, I can go weed eat, right? You're not doing that. And it would be odd for you to throw a fit that your grass ain't growing in mid-January, wouldn't it be? Right? It's not the season for that. So, too, all the stuff you, you plant and whatnot, and, and I'm not a landscaper. If it were up to me, we'd have no landscape in our house. It's less trouble for me, but man, it says otherwise, and well, that's a, a whole other illustration. But, but, but uh, uh, right, I, if it's like right now, I know it's warming up, so we are starting to see some growth, but right now, I'm not, I'm not too worried about that. It's not the season for it. So then why does Jesus get so angry to the point he destroys what we assume is a healthy tree when it doesn't produce fruit in the time of season that it isn't supposed to bear fruit. It makes no sense. Again, you read the story on the surface, it seems as if Jesus is overreacting. And then our bad application is, Jesus got angry, hey, what are you going to do about it? Sometimes I get angry over little things, what are you going to do about it? But something more is happening here. And that's not the gospel writer's uh, point of view. Fig trees bear fruit twice a year. The first one is in May and June and then later on in the year. It was a little early for this tree to have leaves. It is early spring, and, and the only thing on a fig tree at this point is the early formation of buds. This tree, however, is different. It is special because with fig trees, fruit precedes leaves. That's the key issue. Fruit precedes leaves. And so if you are walking from a distance, right, and you see a fig tree and, and you see leaves, you should be able to safely assume there is fruit on that tree because fruit precedes 
leaves. So here's Jesus. He is hungry, like we all get hungry in the middle of, of a Sunday morning and Sunday evening sermon. And, and he thinks, okay, out there in the distance, I see a fig tree. And on that fig tree, though it's not the time of year for it, that fig tree shows all the signs of health. It has leaves, and leaves means fruits. Can you imagine, if you will, just right across the street here at White Castle, they have a big sign. It's, it says, open for customers. Real big sign. You walk in, and they have no sliders, right? Right, you're going to be a little perturbed, aren't you? Right, I was hungry, wanted a slider. Right, right, because the sign, everything about it means that they are open for business and there's food there. So too, this tree gives the impression that there is fruit there. However, what he finds is that this is a fruitless tree. It shows all the signs of fruit, but none is to be found there. So, so, so that means this tree is diseased. On the outside and from a distance, it looks perfectly fine. But as you get closer, as you come up on the tree, you see that it is a fraud. It is diseased. And the disease it manifests itself in the lack of fruits. And so for Jesus, this becomes a profound illustration for the state of his own people of Israel in his day. From a distance, they look like they are healthy they look like as if there is fruit, but as you get closer, you realize it is diseased. Imagine, if you will, if you were a pilgrim, you're suffering in a broken world, living a broken life, and here you are from a distance. You see up Jerusalem, the first thing you would notice was Herod's renovated temple. And you would say, you know what? God is there. I can find God there. He'll answer my prayers there. I can find healing there. This is the holy city. This is the city of David. God dwells with his people in Jerusalem. That's what I need. I will go up to Jerusalem. I will enter into the temple. I will make the sacrifices. I will talk to the priests. And what I will find is fruits. And Jesus sees this as a profound metaphor. What the pilgrim will find is leaves that are diseased. He'll find leaves, just leaves, a fruitless, diseased tree. And he says there in verse 14, such a tree is worthy only of destruction. May no one ever eat fruit from you again. By the way, I want you to notice no one will ever eat fruit from that tree again. Do you see it's already cursed in the sense that it is fruitless, it is diseased. And any fruit that comes from a diseased tree is not fruit you want to eat, is it? Would you? Aren't we right now in this nation worried about certain events about water you drink? I mean, do you want to eat fruit from this tree? So Jesus comes and says, may, may no one eat from you again. And it is cursed. We discover later on, uh, starting in verse 20, we won't take the time to read all of it, that as the disciples return back, they see the tree that it is withered. It has been cursed. It has been destroyed. Jesus made it clear in his preaching that fruitless trees are only good for a fire. Dead religion is only good for judgments. So that's the cursing, right? And that sets up the cleansing starting in verse 15. Now, if the cursing of the fig tree wasn't enough to make you think Jesus is overreacting, no doubt the cleansing will make you think Jesus is having a bad day, right? 
Uh, he needs to change cereal or something. Something is going on here. His morning routine ain't working out. He, he woke up on the wrong side of the bed in Bethany. I don't know what's going on, but he, he just, he's just having a bad day. And it's one thing to destroy a, a, a lowly tree somewhere out there, unless, of course, you're the owner of that tree. But now he is engaging in violence in public. This seems to be quite the overreaction. A couple of things we need to note about the event here. You see it there in verse 15. They came to Jerusalem. He entered the temple, began to drive out those who sowed and those who bought in the temple. What are they buying and selling? A couple of things we need to note here. And the big issue here is the temple tax, right? A couple of categories here. One is the law of the temple tax. Uh, if, if you want to see the law, read Exodus 30, verses 13 to 15. It'll lay it all out. The temple tax was a half shekel. And it's clear that uh, every Jewish male had to pay this half shekel yearly, according to the Mosaic law. And it's very clear that whether you're rich or whether you're poor, you had to pay the temple tax. So this is what we might call today a flat tax. Remember this time that that most Jews, a a, a large percentage of their income would go to Caesar and would go to the temple. There was very little money left. And, and, And as they were legally bound to both, right? And whereas Gentiles didn't have to pay the temple tax, Jews did. Right, so, so a huge chunk of their income went to those two entities. Rome wasn't going to let them off the hook to pay everything to the temple. So they had to do both. Here is a half shekel. So already you're out of a half shekel per year. And that's part of what is going on here in the buy and selling. However, what we also need to see here that, that makes this a, a more complicated issue is that of the conversion rate. The half shekel in Rome had idolatrous images on it, had pictures of Caesar and whatnot. And you cannot have idolatrous images inside the temple. Well, that makes sense. If if you ever read your Bible, that ain't going to fly among the Jewish people. And so what they had to do then was convert the, the Roman half shekel into a half shekel that would be more appropriate. Now, if you've ever uh, converted money, you've traveled overseas, whatnot, you know, if you give them $100, you ain't getting $100 back because the people converting the money, they get a piece of that change, don't they? Right? And so the same thing here. Right? You, so, 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 so they were already being paid a premium of 4 to 8% on that half shekel. Okay? So that half shekel, the cost of it just went up because of the conversion. Um, one other issue that is important here with this temple tax and then the, 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 the sacrifice of being offered and everything else is the issue of monopoly. Have you been to the movies lately? When I say lately, I mean last 75 years. How many of you all have to take out a loan first? Right? Right? I mean, it's, it's crazy, isn't it? I mean, if, 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 if you're going to take you and your spouse... Um, there goes rent money, right? I mean, it's, well, you're looking at what, $20, $30, $40, depending on where you're going, what time, whatnot. So, and then that's what, then, then if, 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 you're, if you're a good Christian, you don't sneak in uh, junk food and you buy it there, um, you, you're going to get a drink you're going to pay for five bucks starting at, right? Maybe more. If you want popcorn, you're going to start at $48 or more, right? I mean, I, we, we just took some of our young adults to, to the Ant-Man movie and, and I got the large popcorn because it's only 50 cents more, right? And I'm thinking, well, if I'm going to pay that much, I'm going to waste all of that, right? There's no way I'll eat all that. I'm going to get my money's worth, right? Yeah, it's just a quarter more. Like, yeah, I'm already paying 40 bucks for a sugary pop drink, right? I'm sorry. But, but, but why, why are those prices like that, and why do we go along with it? Monopoly. Monopoly. 
They have a rule. You can't bring anything in. Same thing happens at stadiums. You, you go watch a UK uh, a play, and so you have something else to complain about in your life, right? And then you go, and, and how much is, is, a, is a large drink there? I remember uh, when I was at Goshen, every year uh, we would go to the Derby Classic game to watch all the recruits come in. I got to see Gorky Zhang, and, and I actually got to meet him. My pizza box back here in my office is signed by Gorky Zhang. Any U of L fans here remember Gorky Zhang that won the national championship in 2013? Yes. And uh, still in the NBA, I will add that 10 years later. What were we talking about? Oh, yeah, so we would go to the Derby Classic game, and what we would do is we would buy the souvenir cups. I mean, cost is like $80. Um, and then we would wait till everyone left, and we'd go around collecting the souvenir cups. And we told ourselves we were helping our wives out because they didn't have to buy cups for the house anymore. Right? I still have some at the house from, from all those years. Right? I mean, we just got, now, I'm the only one that drinks from them is why we've had them for so long. Right? I only need one. Right, until the dishwasher destroys it and I've got a backup. And that'll last you a couple years, you know. Well, why, why do we do that? One, is our own entertainment. We were a bunch of dudes. But, but also because we won't get our money's worth. Why are those prices so high? It's monopoly. So imagine, if you will, that you've come to make a sacrifice. You as a good Jew, you have to make the sacrifice. You come bringing half shekel that now has a conversion rate of 4 to 8%. So you're already paying more than what the law of Moses requires. And then you come and you have a sheep, right? And you've carried that sheep from way, way, way far away. You've been very careful. You think it meets all the requirements. You bring it up to the priest and says, I've got the sheep here. We love the sheep. It is a perfect lamb. We want to sacrifice it for Passover. And the priest, who is the gatekeeper, will make the final decision, if you can use that lamb, says, sorry, I found something wrong with it. It is not without blemish. However... We have one that's already been pre-approved for you over here. Oh, well, that's convenient. It is, except in a monopoly. Because you can't go down the street and get a lamb. It's not been pre-approved, and they'll find something wrong with it. No, you're going to have to buy this lamb over here. Now think about how corrupt that can become. The, 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 the monopoly was so bad, one uh, estimate I found was that doves outside the temple cost around a nickel or a dime in our money, which I guess we should update that to about a quarter, I guess. Inside the temple, it would cost about $10. How many people do you think could afford that sort of rate? I mean, we're in the middle of inflation now, right? I mean, I, I went to Kroger to get like one thing. I mean, I got more than one thing because my wife started to text me. That's sort of how that works. But um, prices have gone up, haven't they? And that affects particularly the poor, the lower middle class. So imagine you're just a good Jewish man bringing your family. And it was significant cost to, to leave your farm, leave your home to come in. And what is it that you find inside the temple? The exchanging of money and the ripping off of the poor. Now just pause there. Will that make you angry? Is that something to be angry about? Should be. With that information alone, we should be angry. Utilizing religion for profit and power is disgusting. And I'm not sure there are many things much more egregious and wicked in our world today. And it still continues because charlatans have always been around. 
If it's, if it's not the religious elites in, 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 in the temple, you remember that in Acts, the apostles meet a guy by the name Simon the Magician who wants to learn the secret to their magic so he can profit off of Jesus. This has always been a problem. Always been a problem. Charlatans remain even today. People have always tried to profit off religion and the hurts and pains of other people. Whether it be a prosperity heretic who wants that private jet and will make you all the promises in the world, or some so-called life coach with special supplements that will change your life, but you got to buy theirs and not, not the competitors. Let God's judgment fall upon them. And let me encourage you not to fall for this nonsense. Don't fall for this nonsense. If a minister of the gospel or of any ministry flashes its wealth, go elsewhere to grow in the word of God. What is eating up Africa right now are the prosperity heretics, where people are in extreme poverty, giving up everything, so a loved one can have cancer removed, so they can find riches in the middle of a desert. It's evil what, what is being doing here. To prey on the poor, to, to, to monopolize religion for your own benefit, it is wrong. Years ago, when my wife and I were still dating, uh, her parents got this thing in the mail, and they, they knew me. I was, I was probably a voice at the time, so they knew I was going to go in the ministry, so they saved this for me. I don't know if, if you remember if you got one of these or not. It was like a large piece of paper, if you will, so not an 8.5 by 11, significantly larger. And, and it, it had basically a face on it, and it was Jesus, of course. I didn't know if you knew Jesus imprinted his face and would mail it to you, but he does. And, and so you, you get it, and it's Jesus. And, and you remember those uh, little books when we were kids? If you like, crossed your eyes, it would be 3D. Uh, or you get the 3D glasses if, if, if you were a, a city person. Us poor folk, we just had to cross our eyes. And, and this prank why I wear glasses now and get migraines. But anyways, and well, that, that's what this was. That if, if you would stare at the eyes of Jesus on this piece of paper, you wouldn't believe this is true because I did it. All right, here it is. His eyes would open. He'd look right at you. Jesus himself. I wish I still had this thing, right? I'm going to just show it to you. Jesus would open his eyes. The Jesus, you know, the guy that, that, that was good with a hammer and, and everything. That guy would open his eyes and look at you. And whatever you prayed for, he'd answer. But if you really wanted him to answer your prayer, what you needed to do was to send a check in the mail. I think the group is out of St. Matthew's, actually. I could be wrong with that. It's been, been 20 years. And, and you send this big check, and they'll send you a rug. And this rug, you'll have your, your, your paper with Jesus' face that he's staring at you. And, and then you have a rug by which, I'm sure if you point it towards Jerusalem, it would be even more spiritual. And then if, if you would do all that, anything you prayed for, you'll get it. And my in-laws are like, what do we do with this? I don't know. Light it up, I guess. I don't know what you want me to do with this. It's nonsense. It's nonsense. You mean to tell me for 2,000 years people weren't getting their prayers answered until this group showed up with these rugs? Their threads were fancy. Their threads were magical. Their threads had, had come from heaven itself. This has always been the problem. What do you think Luther was dealing with when he, when he, when he uh, wrote the 95 Theses? Um, if you've ever watched the, the latest Luther movie, whenever uh, uh, the, the uh, indulgence seller was coming out, uh, promising eternal uh, heaven if you would buy this indulgence, even for your deceased loved ones, and praying on the poor to, to pay for St. Peter's Basilica, which you can still visit, by the way, uh, built there by, by, by the wealth of the poor. 
Um, Luther in the movie, he's confronted by a mother who has a handicapped daughter. They're very poor. And they say, look, Dr. Luther, uh, we, we, we purchased our salvation. And he hoses it. He says, don't you see? It's just paper. It's just paper is all it is. And that led Luther to nail his 95 Theses upon the Wittenberg Church Castle door in 1517, October 31st, All Hallows' Eve. Can I read to you my favorite of the 95? I won't read all 95 of them, but let me read to you my favorite. It's number 82. Why does not the Pope empty purgatory for the sake of holy love and the dire need of the souls that are there if he redeems an infinite number of souls for the sake of miserable money with which to build a church? You see, you hear what he's saying? He said, if the Pope has the power to empty purgatory, he should do it out of love and not out of filthy money because he wants to build something. Check, meet, mate. It's exactly right. Well, this has always been a problem. And no wonder Jesus got angry. It's righteous anger. His anger, we said this morning, is not directed towards personal defense. It's not retaliation because he was wounded. But rather, it is righteous anger that the lost will remain lost even when they think they have found the right location. Even when they think they found the right people and the people who should have the unadulterated gospel, they have corrupted, thus damned the people looking for grace. That should make you angry. Should make you very angry. Jesus will have none of it. I want you to notice what Jesus does in verse 15. He came to Jerusalem. He entered the temple, began to drive out those who sold, as he should, right? The profiting off religion. But he doesn't just go after those who sold their religion. He also went after those who, and he drove out those who bought in the temple. Why? This doesn't belong in the temple. This is all the access Gentiles have to God is right here in this Gentile court. But they have it in the Gentile court because this is the only way into the temple. Thus, there's a monopoly there, and thus there's a lot of traffic there. It would be bad enough it was outside the temple, but now they have it going on inside a house of worship. This is a terrible thing to do. Terrible thing to do. No wonder he drives them all out. What Jesus does in the temple was what he did to the fig tree. And this is why Jesus sandwiches the cursing of the fig tree uh, with, with, with the cleansing of the temple on the inside. Is that we can see the metaphor manifests itself in Israel. And of course, the application of the scene, I think, is immediately apparent. One of the things that concerns me about the American church is I think we are like the fig tree. We've talked a lot about revival, and I've shared with you a lot of my studies on the uh, uh, revival of 1800 here in Kentucky. One of the things I found about those churches is they were being emptied out because of, of just no one wanted to go to church anymore, and also because they held holiness to a high standard. If you have nothing better to do with your life, go to the, go to the historical library, pick any church that was around uh, pre, let's say, 1850. Read their minutes. What are you going to find? Brother so-and-so was caught drinking in public again. We've got to put him on trial here at the church. Brother so-and-so hasn't been paying his bills and his wife and kids are going hungry. We need to put him on trial here at the church. We're sending the deacons over to talk to him. Every month, every month, every month, the last reference I have to one of my ancestors is when he's about to stand trial at a church for a pamphlet he wrote. And he dies three days later. The last reference I've been able to find of him in 1808. Those churches would rather be empty but holy than full 
and unholy. And because Americanism prides itself on consumerism and success, we will compromise on foundational issues so that we can be growing, so that we can be cool, so that we can be the next best thing. Christians in America, we've been chasing fads all day long. We've left behind a pure church. We can be like Israel. We can become like the fig tree. And that is a concern I have. If revival were to come, what sort of church will people find when they enter them into our city, our state, our country? What will they find? Well, I've shared this list with you before, so hopefully this is a review. But I love it, and I think it's helpful. It is imperative we learn the difference between religion on the one hand, the gospel on the other. Again, I've given you this list. Religion depends on what I do. The gospel depends on what Christ has done. Religion says, I obey, therefore I am accepted. The gospel says, because I am accepted, I will therefore obey. Religion has good people and bad people. You're one or the other. If this is Western, I wear the white hat, and whoever I don't like wears the black hat. That's the way religion works. Secular religion is the same way. But the gospel understands we are all bad, but Christ is good. Religion is very aware of other people's sins. The gospel believer is very aware of its own. Religion values a birth family. I grew up in this church. Uh, my grandpappy was a preacher, all that sort of stuff. The gospel values a new birth. Religion preys on fear and insecurity. The gospel is based on joy and assurance. Religion is about me. The gospel is about Jesus. Religion sees Jesus as a means. The gospel sees Jesus as the ends. Religion says that when I am criticized... I, am, I should be furious or devastated because it is critical that I think of myself as a good person. Threats to that self-image must be destroyed at all costs. Again, this is true of secular religion. The gospel says that when I am criticized, I struggle, but it is not essential for me to think of myself as a good person. My identity is not built on my record or my performance, but on God's love for me in Christ. Religion says that anyone who is good deserves a comfortable life. Thus, when bad things happen, it's because they are bad people. When good things happen, it's because they are good people. And when bad things happen to good people, either God did something wrong or I did. The gospel reminds us that all of our punishment fell on Jesus. And when life goes wrong, I am free to struggle openly, knowing that while God may allow this for my training, he will exercise fatherly love within my soul. Religion drives us to performance. The gospel drives us to love. Religion ends, you've heard me say, in pride or despair. The gospel will end in humble joy. We talked about that with the Beatitudes. So too we should consider the difference between law on the one hand, grace on the other. The law is the first word, grace is the last. The law exposes us while grace exonerates us. The law diagnoses, but grace delivers the law accuses, grace acquits. The law condemns the best of us, while grace saves the worst of us. The law says cursed, grace says blessed. Law says slave, grace says son. Law says guilty, grace says forgiven. 
The law can break a hard heart, but only grace can heal a hard heart. So in the end, what Jesus finds, not just in the fruit tree, well, what he finds in the fruit tree, or in the fig tree, rather, is fruitlessness. But what he finds in Israel is faithlessness. And that is not just limited to Israel in the first century. Paul will have the same struggle with the Judaizers in Galatia. John will have the same struggle with the early Gnostics in Ephesus. Augustine will have the same battle with the Pelagians in the 4th century. Martin Luther, as we've seen, will have the same struggle with the Papists in the 16th century. And we continue to have the same battle on all fronts today. But if Christ were to enter into our campus, what will he find? Fruit, fruitlessness? Faithlessness? Let's pray. Our Father, I ask that you would be so kind as to